Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 9. We have a full 41 verses, so don't fall asleep by the time we get to thanks be to God, or we'll be repeating ourselves. John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. 
The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to your word, we confess that you open the eyes of the blind, that it is you who gives sight and it is you who gives understanding. And as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would illumine and enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know all that you have revealed and who your son is for us. Help us, God because we know that we are those who are blind and we're prone not to see as we ought. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We've been in John for several weeks now, and if you remember back to the season of Advent where we began in chapter one is that John is a very polarizing gospel. We are presented with two options, light and darkness in chapter one. And then what we find in the chapters that follow is the story of that light and darkness. There is constant controversy. Jesus' ministry is tumultuous. And for many people, they, this catches them off guard because they expect that Jesus would just be well-received. But rather what we find is that the crowds, they come and they go. They express some interest, but then few invest Jesus' signs encourage faith, but then it turns up to be a superficial faith because he follows up the signs with teachings that the crowds often find hard and difficult, and so most don't remain with him. Dispute, controversy, division, these are the things that mark the ministry of Jesus. It's light and it's darkness. He has this polarizing effect. And there's one important lesson for us as we look at that polarizing effect. There's one thing that's not possible with Jesus, and that is being neutral. <laughs> that he doesn't allow it. That his person makes a claim, and people must respond to that claim, and there's no such thing as a nominal, in name only relationship to him. It is one way or the other. There is no neutrality. There is no nominalism. And we find this exact same polarizing effect when we arrive into chapter nine where Jesus heals once again on the Sabbath. 
This time it is a man who was born blind. And he moves from confessing that Jesus is a prophet in verse 17 to then explaining that he is a man from God in verse 33. Then by verse 35, he agrees that he's the son of man. And then he reaches his climatic profession in verse 38, where he says, Lord, I believe. But at the same time, while this man is moving up and end, after he's been healed by Jesus and he's coming to faith and expression of that faith, there are those streaming in the opposite direction. They are divided and they are angered by Jesus. They are moving away from him. But here's the interesting thing. Those streaming away from him, they were the church. They were the church of the Old Testament, the people who had received the covenant from God. They had the precepts and the promises of God. Those were entrusted to them into their care. They were the people especially marked out by the sign of circumcision and the sacrament of the Passover. They had all the blessings and privileges. They claimed to love God and to serve God. And so it's important for us to ask and to answer the question, how does this happen? How does the very institution, the group of people that God covenants with and makes promises to, how do they then stream away from him? How are they moving in the opposite direction? Why are they being polarized? And it's a frightening question. It's frightening for all of us. Because if it can happen there, then the logical conclusion for us is that it can happen here as well. That these are spiritual dynamics and realities that apply to Jesus' day and they apply to us as well. And so this requires some spiritual courage on our part. And you find that spiritual courage amongst some of the Pharisees at the very close of the passage. If you follow with me in verse 40, some of the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. They say, are we also blind? Are we not seeing? Are we not getting it? Are we missing something? And friends, this is what is incumbent upon us as the church today, is to always ask that question. Are we also blind? Are we missing it in some way? Even though we are present in the church and all around it and have the promises and the precepts and hear the preaching of God and receive the sacraments of God, are we in some way profoundly missing it? In order to answer that question, it'll be helpful to ask one simple question to orient us through these 41 verses. That's this. What exactly does spiritual blindness look like? There's four things that we can develop here from these verses. The first is, is that the spiritually blind delight in casting judgment. You find this laid out helpfully in the first five verses where Jesus' disciples ask him a question. They see the blind man and then they say, Rabbi, who sinned? 
this man or his parents that he was born blind. Now these are Jesus's own disciples who we know were kind of only halfway seeing all the time. They didn't have a full understanding of Jesus. But in their question, we also know that they were reflecting the ideals and values of first century Judaism. It was commonly believed, despite everything else that the Bible says, that when there was affliction and sickness, it was because of a person's sins or perhaps because of their parents' sins. It was simple cause and effect. If you were suffering, it was because you or someone close to you had done wrong. This was how it was viewed. And so the disciples simply reflect that culture in their question to Jesus. However, the Bible doesn't quite explain it in this tidy of a fashion. If you look in places in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you'll find that there are connections made at times between affliction and suffering and sin, and especially concealed sin when it's hidden and it's kept secret and there's intentional hypocrisy. The Bible does hold out the possibility that God will bring judgment, but that judgment is always for the purpose of promoting repentance. And then there's also another flip side. If you were to follow the book of Job on a careful and good reading of it, you'll find that we're actually not encouraged to always speculate about the causes of affliction and suffering. Job's so-called friends, his counselors, they were very quick and with great ease made the connection between Job's faults and his sufferings. But God has none of it. All of these friends are refuted. And in a fallen world, I believe it's best to follow Calvin's advice on this. As a theologian, but more so as a pastor, he said that we need to be always very careful because we can't put our finger on the causes of our afflictions and that we don't need to be too prescriptive. And so Jesus' answer is just that this man was born blind so the glory of God might be displayed because of what was about to happen in his healing. But what is so interesting is what the Pharisees then do with this same observation that the disciples make. If you follow into verse 34, you will see their assertion. After they engage with the blind man, they say, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. What they were saying is that there's a black mark on this man's life, that he was born in utter sin. Most likely, they were pointing to the fact that it was an incestuous or uh, an illegitimate birth, that there was something wrong and he was now being judged by God for something that had been done but his life was being condemned. They assert that he was born in utter sin. And it is this judgment that does form a symptom of spiritual blindness because you can see how it works. When you have a community committed to looking at cause and effect and creating the righteous and the unrighteous, what you find is a polarizing effect and it's very comfortable for those who are healthy 
to then draw the conclusion that I'm on the right side of things. And provided that your health doesn't fail, you're in good shape to say, yes, I'm obviously right with God and doing no wrong because there's no judgment in my body. But this ultimately breaks down for all of us. And it is the pleasure of spiritually blind and self-righteous communities to cast judgments like this. And Jesus knew that the people in front of him in which he was ministering to, that that was easy. And that helped keep things nice and tidy for them. And they could have some measure of control as they looked at their lives. But he'll have none of it because it's a symptom of blindness. Now the second piece that we find to this blindness is that the spiritually blind are preoccupied with human traditions. If you look with me in verses 13 through 17, after the man has been healed, his neighbors then begin to inquire. And you can imagine, the man has suddenly been healed, blind all of his life, and he's seeing and describing things. If you can imagine the joy and euphoria for him as he begins to see God's world and all of its beauty and all of its diversity, to take it in, and following that, he is then delivered to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees then make this important observation. So the Pharisees, it's in verse 15, asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now it's interesting because we've seen that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is continually working miracles on a particular day, the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath, the day of rest. And what's happening is that Jesus has then broken the oral law that the Pharisees had written and accumulated for themselves. You see, at this point in Israel's history, the Pharisees were the really serious religious followers of God. They were the committed type. They were the people interested in purity. They were the ones invested in reform. They wanted to see Israel change. They wanted to make Israel great again. They were responding to the lax Sabbath keeping that had taken place under the prophets that you can read about in Isaiah and Jeremiah where God critiques Israel for not giving the day unto him and using it for business and commerce rather than worship. And so the Pharisees entered into the scene and when they entered in, they became very prescriptive they wanted to help everyone keep the Sabbath so that the national tragedy that had happened hundreds of years before would not replay itself. Do you see the pastoral motivation? Don't simply dismiss them. They wanted to help people keep the commandments. And so they began to write out elaborate rules about what could be done. Some things that were not permitted amongst those rules were things like healing or kneading dough, making a mud cake. You weren't supposed to anoint yourself. 
Jesus flies in the face of all of these oral traditions that had accumulated. Many people will then suggest that Jesus just broke the Sabbath. That's not what's taking place at all. Jesus was observant of the Sabbath. He simply wasn't observant of the traditions of men. Those things that had gone beyond the law of God, he felt no need to submit himself to those things. And so Jesus heals the man. He needs the mud cake and he anoints his eyes and tells the man to go to wash, has him break the oral traditions of the church as well. And so what had happened is that the Pharisees began with the command of God, the fourth commandment of the 10. But then they expanded that claim to involve all other kinds of activities that they believed to be wise for keeping the Sabbath. And then if you did not keep those recommendations, they would call you a sinner and cast you out. And so it's important to watch the logical train and flow of thought of how everything was working because this too can replay itself in the church where we take the claim of God, we receive the command of God and then we come up with our applications and we have those applications then become equal to the very command itself. And we can go very far afield and we can find ourselves creating all kinds of legalistic expositions, things that are required, and then we begin to cut other people out, calling them sinners, looking at them as less than, excluding them on the basis of human traditions, things that we thought were going to be helpful that suddenly became divine requirements in our own calculations. What you find is that the Pharisees then use their little mathematical formula that Jesus broke the Sabbath, therefore he's a sinner, therefore this miracle he has worked is invalid. This was the logical train in which they dismissed the grace of God. And it certainly had to be a tragedy to Jesus because the healing of the man on the Sabbath was pointing to the entire institution of the Sabbath and its purpose. That the Sabbath was about the reign of God and the reign of peace. And in the Old Testament, it picks up this notion of the day that was coming when God would return to heal the creation and bring peace and wholeness and prosperity and sin would be destroyed and God would once again dwell with his people. And Jesus, when he heals the blind man, is pointing to the reality that that has come. Passages like Isaiah 35, where the blind are promised sight. Jesus has just put that on display, announcing very dramatically that the great day of renewal has arrived. And how did the Pharisees, with their traditions, respond? He didn't follow the rules. Therefore, the great day has not arrived. And this is what happens in spiritually blind communities, is we become preoccupied with our traditions, with our commandments that we've constructed, our reform agendas, and we're not simply relating to God in his promise as to what he's doing in the world in Jesus Christ. It's a hallmark of legalism in the church. 
Our applications of God's commands become rules by which we judge the fidelity of others. It happens across a whole host of issues. You'll probably laugh at them because perhaps you've heard the rules before. It happens on clothing, consumption of alcohol, parenting, Bible reading, just to name a few, how you pray or how you don't, what books you should read, what books you shouldn't. It's fine to have personal convictions, but we don't make laws and equate them with giving glory to God as the Pharisees did. It's the second piece of spiritual blindness. A third is that the spiritually blind nurture environments of fear. If you follow in verses 18 through 23, the conversation continues to cascade and run downhill where the Pharisees have interviewed the blind man But now they begin to question whether he was actually ever blind. It's almost irrational conversation. And so they go to his parents and say, is this the man who was born blind? And his parents say, yes. They are willing to certify that he was the one who was born blind. And then they ask this question, how then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Now, when your mama throws you under the bus, (laughs) you are in a bad place in life. And his parents threw him under the bus. John tells us why in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And this is what spiritual blindness does, is it nurtures environments where this kind of fear controls. There's an appropriate kind of fear which is very different from this, the fear of God. But this is not that fear. This is the fear that's promoted by control when the beliefs and the purposes of the people around want to be micromanaged by those in power. They were threatened by the presence of the miracle. And Jesus was not the Christ that they were looking for. He was a redneck from Galilee. He couldn't possibly be the one who was going to come and bring God's deliverance to all the nations of the earth and lead the reform of the church. He couldn't be that one. They were threatened by him. And so they respond by lording over the people under their care holding them in fear, threatening to cast them out. And this kind of environment, we certainly have seen encouraged in churches before. And it's a fear that kills all thanksgiving. It's a fear that kills all the joy. It's a fear that creates a stifled effect. It's not a God that people then turn to love It's not a God that people feel loved by. And when we find thanksgiving and joy stifled in that way, this too is a mark of spiritual blindness. The final piece of this that we see with spiritual blindness is that we boast in our knowledge. 
The passage takes one final climactic turn. After the Pharisees conduct their initial interview and then go speak with the parents, they go back to the blind man around verses 28 and 29. And the Pharisees ask him a question. They said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them in verse 27. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. It's interesting because of the assertion of knowledge. The crowd that is interacting with the blind man is theologically trained. They were fairly sophisticated. They understood the law of Moses and they understood the oral traditions that had developed around it. You could say they were the evangelicals of their day because of their commitment to the reform of Israel. They wanted good things. They were seeking after that. They simply could not see that they were doing it in completely the wrong way, working against the grace of God. But they pride themselves. We know. And it is with their knowledge that they then shield out the grace of God. Now, the Colson family is certainly unlike your family. We have a phenomenon that takes place amongst our children from time to time. And when someone is confronted with a particular set of behaviors, we've noted at times that there's a response, I know, I know. It's a defensive measure. I'm certain they get it from their mother, not me. (laughs) Completely backwards. I know, it's a deflection. It's simply to be done away with a criticism, and we're all prone to do it. We don't like when someone is critiquing us, and the Pharisees certainly didn't appreciate it. They are saying, I know, I understand, I have the truth. I don't need to listen to what you're saying because it's all under control here, that I am part of the family of Abraham, that I was circumcised on the eighth day, that I have been invested in the Passover and all the assemblies of Israel, that I am part of the great purposes of God in the world. This is what we know. The blind man's response is so simple to break up that knowledge. Here's what I know. I couldn't see. The man told me to go wash and I could see. And friends, the grace of God is that simple. And when our knowledge of theology, our knowledge of the word of God begins to get in the way of the grace of God, something has gone terribly wrong. Knowledge can be used to protect and defend us. And we don't always use it in the pursuit of God. But that's the end of all true knowledge, is to love God with all heart, with all the soul, with all the mind. Allow it to be your servant that delivers you to God, not a weapon. 
that you use against others and not a weapon especially that you use against God. But that's what happens amongst the spiritually blind. It's used to protect preconceived opinions. It's used to protect positions and power. It's used to protect against any change. And so it leaves us really with one question. How do we, as God's people, as the church, how do we avoid the trap of spiritual blindness? Is there any way? Because we all know our frame. We know how fickle we are. We know how superficial our own faith and commitment to Jesus can be. And so how do we avoid claiming to see, claiming to know, and yet being blind? Two things to focus on here from John 9. First, we must remember that like the blind man, Jesus gives us spiritual sight. Note back at the beginning of the chapter that the blind man does not cry out to Jesus. Jesus also doesn't say, believe in me and I will grant you your sight. No, Jesus comes unilaterally to the blind man and heals him. It's a one-way interaction. And in theology, this is what we call the grace of God. Jesus comes to us. Salvation is his idea. Salvation is his initiative. And one of the most important affirmations for all of us as Christians, for you and for me, is that Jesus found me. And it's important because it promotes two virtues, thanksgiving and humility. This is the fountain and the spring of those two things is that Jesus came to me and found me and healed me and granted me spiritual sight that he opened my eyes and allowed me to see. But it doesn't end there. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter one and verse 18, he prays that God would continue to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know everything that he's accomplished in Jesus Christ, he continues in chapter three. That God must open our eyes again and again. That he must grant us this sight, that if we want to remain in that spiritual sight, that he must uphold it, he must preserve it. Humility and thanksgiving as we experience continued sight into seeing Jesus. But the second thing, avoiding the trap of spiritual blindness is that we must respond to grace with adoration. You know, verse 38, the blind man says, Lord, I believe. And then John adds, and he worshiped him. Having experienced the grace of God, he professes his faith. And then what does he do? He worships him. He doesn't worship him because he's scared of him in some slavish way, but rather he knows that he's in the presence of something that the Pharisees cannot match. That obviously the great purposes of God to renew and restore the creation, even in this unlikely form, are standing in front of him. And so he gives himself fully to him. All his other allegiances, 
all his other preconceptions melt away and he gives himself to the one who's worthy of all adoration, bows himself, prostrates himself to him. He worships. And friends, those are the two things that Jesus gives us to do. It's simple. It's the response of faith is to recognize that the grace of God comes to us and we respond in adoration and thanksgiving and praise. Have the courage to ask the question, are we also blind? And then do the spiritual diagnostic and allow Jesus to lead you to the simple remedy of thanksgiving in humility and worship, responding to the grace of God. Let that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we confess just how often we retreat into darkness. We know that we're frail. We know that our frames are fickle. We know that we're prone to be unfaithful. And it's only by your grace, it's only by your mercy that you grant us sight and that you uphold our sight. And so grant us to see and to see Jesus clearly and to follow him in humility and thanksgiving, offering praise to him. We pray in Christ's name, amen.